0: She's a kind girl
1: And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of She's With Me by the Deadbeat Poets out of Youngstown, Ohio. The Deadbeat Poets is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about them, let you hear the rest of that song. Another log on that fire, campers. We've got another mystery to explore. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal.
2: Hi, everyone. Steve, remember a couple of weeks ago when we discussed the murder of Charles Clark? Yes. This was a case where there seemed to be a mountain of evidence against a suspect, But by the time the defense was done picking every piece apart, the jury had no choice but to find the defendant not guilty. I will always use that case to remind me that things aren't always what they seem. That's why you have to follow the evidence and not just focus on your favorite suspect. Well, I've got another case today where someone looks really guilty. I mean, really, really guilty. But after not just one. Not two, but three trials, the jury decided to let the suspect walk. And I expect you, our listeners, and tonight's armchair detective are going to have a strong opinion on whether the jury was right this time. Oh, good. So let me lay out the case for you. Our story covers a decade, but it begins on Thursday, November 27, 1981. That's Thanksgiving. But it's not a day off for 25-year-old Rebecca Louise Seaburn. She's a licensed practical nurse and has the morning shift at Morrow County Hospital. Rebecca was a recent transplant to Ohio. The New York native moved to Mount Gilead the previous year, leaving behind her parents, three brothers, and three sisters. Just eight months earlier, in March, she had married a local man, Greg Seaburn. Her shift at the hospital begins at 7 a.m., and she clocks out at 3.53 p.m., and wow, how life can turn on a dime because less than 40 minutes after saying goodbye to her co-workers, Rebecca's going to be dead, murdered by a would-be rapist in the restroom of a Mount Gilead laundromat. A patrolman driving by on regular rounds is flagged down about 4.36 p.m. by a family that had gone to the Duds and Suds laundromat on Marion Road and found Rebecca on the bathroom floor. The coroner will determine she had been stabbed four times by a single-edged knife that pierced her heart. She was still alive when the patrolman tried to apply first aid but she took her last breath before the ambulance arrived. After investigators arrived at the scene, Rebecca's husband Greg pulled up, wondering where his wife was. She had gone directly home after leaving her job at the hospital, and he had loaded the laundry into the car for her. She promised to get the wash started and return right away. But she left at 4.15 and had been gone too long. Now he knew why. It was the first murder in this village in at least 20 years. Mount Gilead had always been a rural island amid the busy urban communities of Mansfield, Marion, and Columbus. Because the brutal attack seemed so random, the community didn't know how to act. Morrow County Sheriff Thomas Harding told women until the killer was caught, women in the area should only travel in twos or with their husbands and definitely avoid going into the laundromat alone. Not surprisingly, the owner of the Duds and Suds wanted this to end fast. Jack Wilhelm put up a $1,000 reward, but added the stipulation was that the information had to come in before New Year's Eve. He also put a security guard on duty until midnight. Sheriff investigators interviewed the family that had found Rebecca And learned that a white car driven by a white male sped away from the back of the building where they had pulled in to park. But their description was so general, Sheriff Harding said it was of no help. So he convinced the father of this family, Lowell Roberts, to undergo hypnosis to try and recall more details. Sheriff Harding bemoaned the fact that crime in the county was rising as the population was growing. And that the character of the area was changing. He said when he first started on the Sheriff's Department in the 1960s, it was rare to see a violent crime. But Rebecca Seaburn was the fifth murder in the county in three years, and the second of a seemingly random nature. The Seaburn case grew cold fast. The Duds and Suds reward expired and was replaced by a $2,000 reward from the Business and Professional Women's Club of Morrow County. By 1983, Rebecca's husband Greg had moved to Arizona. Family said it was too hard for him to live in town with the memories of his young bride and her horrible death. And then, in December of 1988, finally, an arrest. A 50-year-old man from Fredericktown in nearby Knox County was charged with aggravated murder and Rebecca's death. His name was Gary Bruce Chandler, a former employee of the Ohio Department of Transportation. Police were tight-lipped on why they suspected Chandler, only saying they had substantial evidence. It was revealed that they had actually interviewed him back in 1983 when he admitted he'd been in the laundromat twice that day, Once to do laundry, a second time because he'd forgotten something. We waited too long, seven years, Mount Gilead Police Chief Robert Rule said in declining further comment. We're not going to take any chances on losing this. Chandler pleaded not guilty at his arraignment, where he was accompanied by tearful family members who filed into court to support him. And they were by his side throughout his trial which started in May of 1989. Right off, defense attorney Thomas Clark was on the offensive, turning the focus away from Chandler and onto another suspect. A man named Roger Morthland, who was an orderly at the hospital where Rebecca worked, told his friends on three different occasions that he killed her. A friend of Morthland's would testify that he was at Morthland's home drinking beer and listening to music when Morthland got weird. He went to a red toolbox, pulled out a black and orange screwdriver, and started stabbing a chair several times, saying, That's what I did to that nurse in Mount Gilead. He said he went right to the police department after leaving Morthland's house to report that incident. Police questioned Morthland. He said he was drunk and he was only kidding. There was no physical evidence to connect Morthlin to the crime, so he was released. But in 1984, he confessed again, this time to a cellmate at the Ohio State Reformatory. A convict named Greg Grove told investigators Morthlin was shaken and began telling him about the murder, saying he was obsessed with the girl and that he had raped and killed her. But it's worth noting here that Rebecca had not been raped. The convict said "Morthland told him he used a knife and threw the knife down the drain. In 1985, that was a year later, Morthland confessed again, this time to a man named Charles Humphrey, telling him that he had killed some girl in a laundromat. Morthland testified at Chandler's trial, and he said those things, he had said them because he thought people would look up to him. But if it sounded like things were going well for the defense, prosecutor Howard Hall had an ace in the hole. Turns out, Chandler's finger and palm prints were found all over the women's restroom. Chandler was first interviewed in the case in 1983. That was two years after the crime. His fingerprints were sent to the BCI, but returned no match, apparently because of some unspecified error. This was caught in 1988, when Morrow County sent prints from the bathroom to Columbus police to see if they matched a string of murders in that city. They also sent along the fingerprints of Chandler and Morthland, their two chief suspects. That's when an FBI technician matched 10 palm and fingerprints to Chandler. They were around the edge of the sink, in the basin of the sink, on the wall beneath the light switch, on the inside lower half of the door, and on the wall facing the sink and toilet. When confronted about it, Chandler admitted he'd been at the laundry twice that day, but no way had he entered the bathroom. I'm not a freak, he said. I would not have been in there, he told an investigator when they questioned him the previous December. Jurors also heard the shocking circumstances behind the discovery of Rebecca. The Roberts family had arrived at the laundry, apparently, while the killer was fleeing. The family included Father Lowell and Mother Barbara, eight-year-old daughter Tina, and 12-year-old son Billy. The daughter Tina had entered the bathroom first, then came back out. She was deaf and mute, but she was pale and gesturing emphatically at the room. Her brother Billy went in to see what was bothering his little sister, and he found Rebecca behind the door. Jurors heard from two youths playing hide-and-seek behind the building who saw the same white car the Roberts described. They said it was parked at the back entrance to the building for about 15 minutes with the driver door open when a medium-built man ran out of the back door, jumped into the car, and sped away. Investigators also testified that Chandler had been at the hospital while Seaburn was working that Thanksgiving day and he likely saw her while he was there visiting a friend. The prosecutor also put on the stand a cellmate of Chandler's at the Delaware County Jail, a man named Martin Gooden, who testified that Chandler had confessed to him he killed Rebecca. He even wrote it out in a letter and signed it. But it didn't help the prosecution's case that Gooden was in the clink for forgery and that he apparently had a history of extracting alleged confessions from cellmates to trade for favors. Closing the door on that testimony was a BCI agent who analyzed the handwriting and determined it wasn't likely Chandler's. Chandler had family members testify for him, including his sister Sandy Hoffman, who pointed out that her brother weighed almost 300 pounds and wouldn't be confused with a medium-billed male described by witnesses. On May 30th, 1989, Chandler himself took the stand. He couldn't explain his fingerprints in the restroom. He said he was in the laundry that day, but had no specific recollection of being in the restroom. He said he was diabetic and taking water pills back then and likely used the restroom without realizing he had used the wrong one. The prosecutor, however, Noted that Chandler had been a customer at the laundromat for five years and certainly knew where the men's room was. In his closing argument, he painted a picture where Chandler had Thanksgiving with relatives, spent time with a friend, then drove to the laundromat where he dragged Rebecca to the bathroom, choked her, stabbed her, and started pulling her pants down when he heard another patron arriving. He then escaped out the back door and sped off in his white car. In a dramatic display, Prosecutor Hall dressed a mannequin in Rebecca's bloodstained clothes and brought in the door and sink from the laundromat to recreate the scene. He then proceeded to show how Chandler could have made the finger and palm prints while bracing himself to get up from Rebecca's dying body. Morthland, the defense's favorite suspect had an alibi. He was at work, the prosecutor said. Chandler had no alibi. Chandler's friend, Randy McKee, said he spent part of that Thanksgiving day with Chandler. He said they went for a 20-minute ride in Chandler's white 1977 Dodge Aspen, which he had recently purchased. He said Chandler was crying because his girlfriend had gone back to her ex-husband. But he and Chandler separated more than half an hour before Rebecca was killed, a period of time that Chandler couldn't account for. And then the judge allowed the prosecutor to question Chandler about his rap sheet. Chandler had been convicted of assault with intent to rape in 1959, a case in which he choked a woman. He was also convicted of carrying a concealed weapon in 1982, a case in which he was arrested by police in Sunbury, after someone reported a suspicious person driving through that town's laundromat parking lot. The jury took seven hours to decide the case. They found Chandler guilty. The jury foreman said, a man's fingerprints in the lady's restroom, that didn't look too good. The foreman said Morthland was also ruled out because he had an alibi. After hearing the verdict, Chandler's group of family members broke down in sobs. A sister ran from the courtroom crying. Chandler's girlfriend had an epileptic seizure and was taken to the hospital by ambulance. His younger sister told a reporter, it has been the loving support of his family and friends that has gotten him through this. Nobody believes he did it, but Rebecca Seaburn's husband certainly did. Perhaps this will enable me to close this particular chapter in my life and go on with the rest of my life, Greg Seaburn told a reporter. In June of 1989, Chandler's lawyer asked for a retrial. While the jury was deliberating, he received a call from a previously unknown witness who said she saw a van leaving the laundromat about the time of Rebecca's killing. The same witness, Avira Walter, also said she had seen Morthland at a gas station near the laundromat at 4:25 p.m. Thanksgiving Day, Rebecca's body had been found just after 4:30. The defense also argued that the court was wrong to allow the prosecutor to bring up Chandler's previous convictions. A Morrow County common pleas judge denied the new trial, but on appeal, the Ohio Supreme Court granted one. The jury should not have heard about that a previous attempted rape, they said. And so in March of 1991, 10 years after Rebecca's murder, a second trial began. Chandler did not testify this time. The jury deliberated more than 14 hours, but the judge had to accept they were hopelessly hung, nine to acquit, three to convict. A third trial began a month later. And the third time was the charm for Chandler. The jury found him not guilty. As far as the prosecution was concerned, the Rebecca Seaburn murder was a closed case. They are absolutely confident they had the right man, and there was no point in looking further, even with the jury's decision. A full review and understanding of all the facts and circumstances has not caused us to change our position on who killed Rebecca Seaburn, Prosecutor Hall said, Our system works, and this jury obviously required more evidence to convict. That fall, Chandler sued the state of Ohio for wrongful imprisonment. And so Chandler prepared for a fourth trial, this one a civil case where the burden of proof was on him. Ohio law makes a distinction between those who have been wrongfully imprisoned and those who avoided criminal liability. In other words, acquittal does not mean the defendant was innocent and should never have been in jail. It was up to Chandler to convince a judge that he did not commit the crime. That trial took place in 1994, and prosecutors outlined all the reasons why they were right to lock up Chandler. He didn't have an alibi. He admitted being at the scene. His fingerprints were all over inside the bathroom. He drove a white car like the one that sped away. He had a record of sexual assault and of having a concealed weapon while cruising a laundromat in another city. Judge James Henson, who heard the case, agreed. It is the finding of this court that the plaintiff has failed to prove that he did not kill Mrs. Seaburn, the judge wrote. A finding of not guilty by a jury is not a finding that a person did not commit the crime well with us tonight for our armchair detective is haley cornflow an ohio mysteries listener from delaware ohio hi haley hi paula how are you doing i'm doing great so delaware that's a uh, home of our uh, episode on ruth Baumgartner. are you familiar with that one
0: yeah the Ou student that went missing,
2: yes, yes. But listen, you are also very familiar with uh, Mount Gilead, which is the location of tonight's mystery. What do you know about Mount Gilead?
0: So Mount Gilead is a really small town, and it's kind of in the middle of uh, around like Delaware, where you get in a more like city area. And then right across the road, basically, is kind of Amish uh, communities. So it's it's a real mix of both worlds. It it is small. It's got the real homey feel. You can leave your doors unlocked.
2: So Haley, this case had every outcome possible. You had a a guilty verdict, a hung jury, and a not guilty verdict. So just cut to the chase. What did you think?
0: I personally think the guy is guilty. Uh, There's just so much circumstantial evidence. And a lot of evidence that wasn't allowed in the original trials. So, I mean, if you're looking at it through the kind of American justice jury, then maybe it was the right thing to acquit with the lack of evidence. But truly, with with everything that I've I've heard and read. It's very, he's very guilty. But it is really fun to think about this other guy, Roger Mortland, because there are a lot of ways you can connect him to it.
2: I will never get over the idea of people who confess to murders they didn't commit. And then in this guy's case, when they finally got down to it and said, why? He said, well, I thought people would look up to me. (laughs) I just don't get that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't get it either. I guess the context is his age. He was a really younger kind of guy. He's in his early 20s. I think he had a record, so he kind of had a seedy past even that young. So from what friends had said about him, he was real boastful. And the thing is, if you're really thinking about it, he had the motive. He had told... He had told a friend he was obsessed with this girl who he apparently worked with, and he could have had access to her every day. He was an, he was an orderly, so he was just maybe sweeping hallways or stocking bathrooms, but at any time he could have run into her. And the thing that I, I don't think was written down anywhere is that hospital is right across the street from the Duds and Suds. It's, oh. You can walk across the yard to the Duds and Suds. Oh. Yeah. So when you're thinking, when you're when you're hearing this guy's confessions and he says, you know, he went over there. Everybody says, well, he had an alibi. He was at work. But he could have easily slipped away and said, hey, I'm going to clean the sock room or something like that he could have easily slipped away and it's just right across the street but there was never any sign that anybody had seen him there was no witnesses and there were about 30 witnesses for the prosecutor so they had just buckets of witnesses who been seen uh, uh going against gary bruce chandler and you would think that somebody had seen if roger mortland was crossing the road
2: the only thing i would Question Would be, could you stab somebody like that and come away with no blood on you? I think it'd be hard to like go back to work without any sign of blood on you, but it's possible. And now that I know that it's that close to the hospital, that surely made him seem like you know a possibility.
0: He was an orderly in a hospital. Maybe he could have borrowed some scrubs. He could have grabbed some rubber gloves so there was no fingerprints. Um, He could have been this super slick guy. And then, you know, outside of his uh, murderous ways, (laughs) he lets it slip because, you know, for whatever reason. But I just truly don't think that's that's the case. I I really think it's just kind of he just was at the right time, right place, and just happened to run his mouth. So,
2: yeah, You know, as I- a juror, it would be hard for me to get over just one piece of evidence, and that is the finger and palm prints inside okay. the bathroom in the places where it would found who touches the bottom of a door on the inside of a woman's bathroom. I I can't see another reason for them being there. You know, if he had admitted, if, if Gary had admitted he had went into that women's restroom because the other one wasn't working or he had a fetish or something like that, it would have been a lot easier for him to dismiss those fingerprints. But the places where they were found are not the kind of places where you normally leave fingerprints.
0: Exactly. And that was his argument is he had, I know he actually really was a really, a really bad diabetic. Um, it, he passed away from diabetes, I think around 2002. So he succumbed to that. It was a problem. He was taking medication for it. And he claims that he was in some type of either medical, medication induced or a diabetic. Freak. So it's originally why. He claimed he was, he was never there and never happened. And when they went and interviewed him again, it was, oh, well, I was there twice, to, once to do laundry, and the second time because I'd forgotten something. And then it, when they found the fingerprints or when that evidence came to light, however that went on the timeline, then it was, well, I don't know which restroom I went in. I guess I could have gone in the female's restroom. And originally he had said, uh, he had made the comment that I, I don't do that. I'm not a freak. So he just keeps making excuses down the line. And I wonder when it would have stopped happening for him, like giving those excuses, because it was just it was very convenient each time he gave a new reason. And I also wonder if he was if he was, in fact, in this um, diabetic fugue that had him so confused about which restroom You know, he was going in, then, you know, why would he be aware enough to even realize he forgot something to go in there anyway? So it was either he forgot something or then he had to use the restroom, but he didn't use the women's restroom. But then, oh, well, I don't know. I might have because I wasn't all there. And to the fingerprint, um, the way the fingerprints. Okay, wait a minute.
2: Wait wait a minute. Because you're bringing up something I'm very excited about. In newspaper jargon, we call this bearing the lead, and that's when we have something really exciting to share, but we wait to tell you. So you've brought up Prosecutor Hall. Why don't you tell us what the surprise is for our listeners?
0: Judge Hall, the former prosecutor, became a judge. I am acquaintances with him. So when my husband and I first uh, got our first apartment in Mount Gilead, he was actually our landlord's, which is how we met. So he owns some property there too. So when I was reading the newspaper articles, I saw Prosecutor Hall, I was just so excited. I was giddy. And I called my husband immediately. I said, this case I'm working on, you need to call Judge Hall right now. And And get an interview with him because I have so many questions.
2: (laughs) And you did. You called him.
0: Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. We spoke spoke at length yesterday about
2: this. That's awesome. What a treat for us to have something that that current.
0: So go ahead.
2: Tell us what he had to say.
0: So about the fingerprints, he had said when over the body, um, it had seemed like The fingerprints were bracing, uh, like, it's as if somebody had braced themselves to get up. So they were all down below, which, you know, there's no reason. Like you said, there's absolutely no reason for those fingerprints to be down there. And it's especially telling when you, you have multiple handprints running up the wall to brace yourself. And, you know, it makes sense because... Gary Bruce Chandler was a big guy. He was very big. I think the article says he was about 300 pounds. Um, So if you are down, broke down on the ground and you go to get up and you're a big guy, you're going to kind of walk up the wall with your hands, especially if you have health ailments and and things along that line. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very convincing evidence right there.
2: I was really impressed with how this dramatic presentation must have been for the the jurors. I mean, a prosecutor hall dressed the mannequin in Rebecca's bloody clothes, put the laundromat door and the sink right there, set it all up in front of the jurors, and then showed how a killer might be pushing himself up from the floor after killing somebody and where those finger and palm prints were I, that was like brilliant I, I don't know how that alone might not have been enough yeah. to influence the jury
0: yeah talk about visuals <laughs> I mean and that I I don't know if that idea came specifically from the owner of Duds and Suds Jack Wilhelm he said come take Take the stall, take the sink out, take everything you need, and you put it in that trial. And so that's how he he had acquired it is because he you know this town's so small. Judge Hall knew Gary Bruce Chandler's. Brother-in-law, I believe. So that's you know that's just how small this town kind of is. Right. And, and he, he wasn't even from Mount Gilead, Gary. I think he was actually from Marengo So that to, that town and all the little towns on the outskirts, yeah.
2: So when you talk to Judge Hall, did he have any change of heart on whether he thought Chandler was guilty or innocent?
0: It really did not sound like that. There was a lot of evidence that wasn't allowed in trial, and it was part of the evidence the first time that wasn't allowed in the other trials, which was his history of sexual assault. So what happened, I think what was brought up in the first trial was that Gary Bruce Chandler, when he was about 15, and I think it was sometime in the 50s, he broke into a state trooper's home. He, I'm not sure if he had meant to rob it or anything, but either way, the trooper's wife was home, and he assaulted her but he was he was put in a juvie for a while for that. So I think that was what was brought up in the first trial. And part of the downfall of the second and third trial was the fact that, that that piece of evidence was not allowed in court. And another piece of evidence that wasn't allowed is the fact that Gary Bruce Chandler was impotent. So he struggled in relationships. And there are a lot of cases of murderers who have issues like that. And they they turn to you know hate women and... Uh, things of that sort so I thought that was kind of a key piece of evidence that uh, really I thought really should have been involved but I think the problem was it maybe it fell under some HIPAA violations or he needed to get that confirmed by a doctor and that wasn't possible so that was another piece that was left out
2: well you're sharing some things that we didn't know so that is really helpful yeah
1: I had no idea that he was impotent I mean that's Richard Chase was like that, Andrew Chicatello.
2: And it makes you wonder, in some cases, if they think that that's how they can get an erection, by being violent. Absolutely.
1: I mean, that's what Andrew Chicatello would. And uh, Richard Chase, he just didn't believe that he had enough blood, so that's why he would drink blood all the time. kind of like the vampire. They called him the vampire yeah. of Sacramento.
2: Did Judge Hall talk at all about what this case meant to him personally?
0: You know, I think it was his one of his first cases. I think he was an assistant prosecutor, and this case came up shortly after. So I think it was big for him. I really, really, truly do. The way he talked about it made it sound like it was it was a very big case for him.
2: Prosecutor Hall became a judge. Their roles uh, in the justice system changed. Did you have any indication whether Judge Hall thought that third jury got it right, given the evidence they had? I mean, they did not get to hear what the first jury heard who convicted him. Did the third jury do the right thing by saying, sorry, you didn't bring enough evidence?
0: So from the way it sounded, how he talked about this, it seems like that kind of troubled him. He struggled with it. He said, you know, juries are sworn to fact. Uh, they got to take take the facts as they are. And every jury in case is unique. So he believes that there, there definitely was an American justice at the very core.
2: Yeah, this is one of those cases where you come away thinking... You got the right guy and you want him to pay the price for what he did. And yet, if you convict him on evidence like a former conviction, then you have to realize you have opened the door for everybody being judged by a mistake they made, you know, previously in their life. But do you want a justice system that can convict you based on? previous mistakes that have nothing to do with the current one and it can be really hard to be objective and say no we have to have these rules in place for everyone right that's one of the things that just frustrates me about this case is because i don't have any doubt that he was guilty
0: It's very frustrating because that's true. I believe that he got away with murder. But at the same time, I do believe in the evidence-based, you know, reasonable doubt kind of conviction. And there just wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough.
2: Right. Well, Haley, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It is such a treat for our listeners when our armchair detectives take their job seriously and actually do some research on their own. So being able to uh, reach out to Judge Hall and get in a, a personal account of that, that was amazing.
0: I love your guys' show. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, that's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news clippings, and more. On this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
2: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. The Deadbeat Poets is comprised of a veteran group of Ohio musicians with eclectic credentials. They are Frank Sessich, Pete Revere, John Halumick, and John Corey. This Youngstown Act formed in the summer of 2006, and they've grown a fan base that extends across the pond and throughout Europe. They've performed in England, Scotland, the Czech Republic, Germany, Denmark, and Sweden. So they don't have any performances scheduled, but look for them on social media. I know they're on Facebook, and I'm sure you could find more of their music on Spotify and YouTube.
1: Tonight, we're featuring their song, She's With Me. So turn up the volume, and since you stuck with us to the end, you get to hear the whole thing. Enjoy this track by the Deadbeat Poets, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War. But half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, we'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency check out our show ohio versus the world on the evergreen podcast network for our new episode about america's most forgotten war now back to the show